This is from the silver chair. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, or could I, or would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very slow growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come and drink, said Jill. I will make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I, su I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. When C.S. Lewis gave us Aslan in his Chronicles of Narnia, he provided for us a picture of a life-giving king full of gracious compassion who invites us to himself to come and to drink and to live, and yet he is at the same time ferociously powerful and regal and unchallenged in his supremacy over the entire creation. And I really appreciate the way that Lewis depicts Christ uh, as Aslan the lion because by doing so, he refuses to allow us to think that the love of God in any way minimizes the strength of God or the power of God or the authority of God or the dignity of God or the holiness of God or the superiority of God. In a word, uh, the love of God does nothing to diminish the greatness of God. And so when we set our minds to thinking about the love and the mercy of God, uh, we should think of it as the love and the mercy of a lion. That's at least the way that Lewis tries to help us understand the God of the Bible, a lion who has in fact swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. The Bible intends to shape us with a sense of, of uh, gravity for the God of mercy and the God of grace that we find in the Bible. And that gravity, that greatness, provides a backdrop against which the love and the mercy of God shine forth so uh, that we are feeling that the reception of that grace is coming from somebody who's really powerful, right? Uh, it's one thing to receive grace from a fellow sinner. And actually, that's a great delight to receive grace from a fellow sinner, uh, it, it's life-giving and it's encouraging, but it's a whole other thing when we receive grace from the one who is known as the Lord of Armies 
or the Lord of hosts is the more familiar translation. And it will bend your mind and transform your life when you realize that that's the God, that's the God who gives us grace. The more profound his greatness, the more profound his graciousness, that this mighty king would pardon me. See, there's the, you, you need, we need both sides of that. That this mighty king would pardon me and make me his child. Uh, see, the graciousness is even more wonderful when we understand the background of the, great, the greatness of God. So we have to uphold and celebrate both the love and the gravity of the God whom we serve. Our, our emphasis on the, the kindness of this God should never diminish uh, the glory and the greatness of this God. And as people recognize the great magnificence of the God of grace, it produces in us a type of, um, I'm going to use this word, a type of fear. Uh, and I'm going to come back to that word and, and show you why I'm using that word. It is a very biblical concept, the fear of the Lord. I want to talk about that some tonight. Um, <clears throat> Because it's really important that this God that we serve is both revered and trusted, both feared and hoped in. And that dynamic is supposed to mark the heart of, of the Christian. And those who embrace that, I, I don't, I, maybe we would call it a tension. Those who, who can live well within that tension find that their lives are filled with a courage to really radically live for this God, because they know the greatness of this God. They know His power. They uh, live with this great conviction of His supremacy over all things, and they know that He's on your side. And when those two things match up, the God who reigns over the universe is on my side. It strengthens me to live in obedience to Him in radical new ways. Um, and when you don't really believe that, but you pretend to live like you think God is great. And you pretend to live like you think God is gracious. And you do it simply for the sake of putting on a religious front so that people will think highly of you. You're messing with a lion. And that's what happens in this passage today in the book of Acts. So turn with me, if you're not there already, Acts chapter 4. Let me give you a little bit of context so that you're up to speed. The last time we looked at the first part of Acts chapter 4, and um, the scene was uh, one in which Peter and John had been uh, arrested by the religious authorities because they had been preaching in the name of Jesus, and they had been healing, and uh, the arrest resulted in the authorities, the religious authorities, commanding Peter and John to no longer teach or speak in the name of Jesus, and so Peter and John come back to the church, they reported to the church, and the church has this powerful time of prayer during which uh, the church acknowledges the sovereignty and the greatness of God including his sovereignty over the crucifixion of Jesus. And they ask God for boldness, and they ask God to show up in power, in undeniable supernatural power. And then God responds to that prayer by shaking the building in which they're gathered and by giving them boldness 
and uh, filling them with the Spirit and uh, enabling them to go about continuing to preach in the name of Jesus. So the community has this general, the church community has this general sense of God's greatness. They have a a general sense of the graciousness of God, and they lived with the conviction that God was powerful and God was for them. That's why they're praying this way. Strengthen us, because you're on our side, to speak in the name of Jesus and show up in power, like do some powerful things to indicate that this is the real deal. And because of this conviction, it produced radical lifestyles of obedience to Jesus. And I want to look at this radical lifestyle of obedience. So chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had any need. Now, these people are not normal. <laughs> this, is, this, this is a radical type of generosity where people are liquidating their assets and they are uh, willing to sacrifice their money for the sake of those who are needy among them. There's a bizarre level of generosity that's taking place in the church community. Now, don't think of this as uh, you know, some ancient foretaste of, of communism. This is not mandatory, enforced uh, redistribution of all resources according to the needs of the community. That's not why these people are sharing with one another. This isn't saying nobody owned anything, and it's not saying everybody owned everything. It wasn't mandatory. It wasn't a tax. It wasn't forced distribution. It wasn't a denial of the concept of private property, and that becomes very clear in chapter 5. I'll point it out when we get there in just a minute. What's happening here is just simply a radical generosity, the free distribution of uh, those who had excess giving to those who had need. And it was uncoerced. It was just the joyful overflow of the greatness of God, an awareness of the greatness of God, an awareness of the graciousness of Jesus. It says in verse 33 that great grace was upon them all. Love was welling up in their hearts for one another. And they realized, you know, I've got more than I need. So I'm just going to sell this and then I'm going to give to those who are in need in the church. And Luke gives us a particular example of this kind of generosity in the life of a man named Barnabas, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, verse 37, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so here's just a snapshot of the community. Barnabas owns a field that he doesn't need, and he sells the field, he takes the money, he gives all of it to the apostles, and the apostles distribute it according to the needs of the community so that the poor within the church are taken care of. Um, I want you to think about what that would look like. Imagine that somebody in the church, you, in the, just imagine you catch wind of this, somebody in the church sells a house, um, or actually we had, a fr- we had friends in Minneapolis who did this. They sold their house, they gave all their equity away, uh, the guy got a new job, so they moved cities, and they started renting. 
They gave, every, they gave everything away. Imagine you caught wind of that. How would you feel? I would say that if you're filled with the Spirit, you would feel inspired, you would feel joyful, you would feel thankful. But imagine it's not your best moment, and somebody in the church does this. Can you imagine feeling maybe um, judgmental or maybe jealous or envious, like, dang, that was super generous. Um, Dang, I wonder wonder what we could do to get people to think of us as being super generous. Uh, Yeah, you could have a bad response to this kind of thing, and that's exactly what happens here. There's a really bad response to this in the church. So Luke, Luke is kind of setting us up for this incident that takes place. And the setup for the incident is the amazing spirit-filled generosity of the community. And specifically, Barnabas, who sold a field and gave all the money to the church. And then this really bad thing happened. Okay, so here it is. Here's the incident, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and, bought, uh, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, let me summarize what's happened here. You probably don't need it because we just read it, but I'll do it just in case. Ananias and Sapphira, they own a piece of property. They decide to sell the property. They skim some of the proceeds off the top and then present the rest of the money to the apostles. Peter discovers, presumably by a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit, that they have kept some of the money back for themselves, and as a result, God kills them both. Now, what's the issue here? And I'd like to start by saying what the issue is not. The issue is not stealing from the church. The issue is not 
theft. That's a wrong interpretation of this passage. In order for this to be theft, the land and the money would have to belong to the church. It would have to be the property of the church so that when Ananias and Sapphira keep some of it for themselves, there is a justice issue, a social justice issue, and they are stealing from what belongs to the church. Um, But the money here, this passage emphatically teaches that the money and the property did not belong to the church. The property and the money belonged to Ananias and Sapphira, and they were free to do with that money whatever they pleased. That's what Peter teaches very clearly in verse 4. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It was yours. And After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, you were not obligated to sell your property and give it all to the church. Now, if the grace of God compelled you to do that, by all means, feel free to sell your property and give to the church. However, you're free to keep the field. And if you sell the field, you're free to give only a portion of the money to the church if that's what you choose to do. This is your property. Okay, that's why this isn't communism. Peter's affirming the property was yours, and when you sold it, the money was yours afterwards. So, this isn't an issue of theft. So, if theft isn't the issue, what is the issue? This is the issue. The problem is that Ananias and Sapphira don't fear God, and so they are lying about their generosity in the hopes that people will praise them for their generosity. That's the problem. Verse 3 says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So twice Peter says, this is a lying issue. This couple is free to keep the field. They're free to keep the proceeds or any portion of the proceeds. And instead, what they do is they sell the field. They keep some of the proceeds. They give the rest to the church. And when they give it to the church, they do it as though they are giving the entirety of the proceeds to the church. They lie about how much money they got for the field. Now, why would they do this? Why are they lying? Why why do they feel the need to give the impression that they sold a field and gave everything to the church, if it's not stealing, and the answer is that they want to make it look like they're doing the same thing Barnabas did. They want it to look like they're just as generous as Barnabas is. So for the sake of their own reputation, they want to give everyone the impression that they're giving everything away. They want to give everyone the impression that they have a loose grip on their money, and a loose grip on their possessions. They want to make it look like they've been really impacted by the gospel. They want to make it look like they're really godly people. They want to make it look like they really love other people, and it's all a show so that they will receive applause. They've given no attention to the true state of their heart, 
They have no concern for God's glory. They have no concern. This is crazy. They have no concern for God's approval. They want man's approval. You see that? They want people. They don't care what, they don't care what God says about this. They want, peop, they want to know what people say about it. And they're doing things to ensure that people say good things about them as a result of what they're doing. That's what matters to them. And in order to do it, they'll lie to the church. And Peter says, you're not lying to the church. Ultimately, you're lying to God. And he sees right through it. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. (laughs) For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Whatever blessing there would have been for giving this money, because their motive is to do it so that people will look at them, God says, you lose your reward in heaven. It ruins the value of the giving when you're doing it for the sake of applause from men, approval from men. What you ought to care about is what God approves of. What you ought to care about is getting approval from your Father. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. See, this is what the hypocrites do. They, do, they give in a way so that people think that they're generous so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Wow, Ananias and Sapphira are so generous. That's it. That's your reward. How'd it feel? Because that's all you're going to get. But when you give to the needy, Jesus says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. Do you care about that? You want the approval of God? You want the reward of God? Or is it enough for you to simply hear people say, man, that was so generous of them? This is precisely what they're doing. I mean, they're living in direct opposition with regards to their giving, direct opposition to the agenda that Jesus would have for them. And God despises it. And in a really rare act of severe and swift justice, God actually takes their lives. And it's a super serious response. And in God's wisdom, he knows that this young church, I guess, needs this. And um, I guess it, has, it had its purposes. What can we learn from it? What, what, what are we supposed to learn from this passage? I mean, that's, that's, ba- that's basically an unpacking of the passage. There are three things that I think are applicable to our lives that I'm going to run through here. Um, and the first one is this, that God's eyes are always upon the heart. God's eyes are always looking at what's going on in the motives and the intentions of, uh, behind, that are behind our actions. When you read the New Testament, it's easy to see that God expects a different kind of lifestyle from his people. He, he, in fact, you might, even, you might even say, Jesus expects his followers to actually follow him. That is to say, he expects us to be obedient to what he's laid out for us as, as the roadmap for 
our lives. And so he says things like John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my what? Yeah, he cares, he's a, he cares about us being obedient to his commandments. We are to live differently from the world and we're to live differently than from the way that we used to live when we weren't following Jesus. Now, true Christians um, should hunger and thirst for this, to, to be obedient people. But we have to watch out for getting mixed up in our motivations for obedience. We have to watch out for thinking that the main emphasis of the Christian life falls on the modification of our behavior, as though our conduct itself is the main thing that Jesus is trying to get us to modify, as though all we're really about is trying to get people to stop cussing and get through their Bible reading plan and making sure you get, to, get your kids to church three out of every four Sundays and a thousand other moral and religious objectives that we uh, could be aiming at. And sure, those are all good things, but that's not the bottom line because Christianity is an inside-out religion. God starts with the heart, and He wants the heart, and that heart is supposed to bear fruit. Obedience is not the root, it's the fruit of what God does uh, in the heart. So Christian conduct is intended to be the result then of God's Spirit at work within our hearts as He invades us and gives us strong conviction about how great He is and how good He is as He shows us His grace in the gospel. You can get everything right on the outside, but if your heart isn't engaged and you have no true desire to please God or to love others, then your actions lose their significance like they did for Ananias and Sapphira. See, Ananias and Sapphira actually probably gave a great deal of money to the church. And it, it lost all of its significance. God was really angry about this. Why? It's because of the motivation. And you set that alongside the, the, you know, the story of the widow who gave her, I forget what she gave, two, like two, two mites or two shekels or something, some ancient form of money that makes no sense to me. She gave two little nothings. And Jesus says, you know, that woman just put more into the temple treasury than anybody else. Why? How do you, what? God's, God's math is, uh, is directed at the heart, uh, not at the checkbook ultimately. And so you can write a fat check, and it means nothing if the motivations are corrupted. So let's pray. Let's seek to be the kind of people who not only do what God wants, but let's ask God to make us the kind of people who desire what God wants so that we're not just robotically modifying our conduct, thinking that that's really... That's really what God's after, because God's eyes are always on the heart. That's the first thing. God's eyes are always on the heart. That's what we can learn from this. Here's the second thing that we can learn from this. Beware of seeking glory from others. Beware of living for the praise of others. And it's, this is this deep, dark tendency in the human heart. It is a poisonous, uh, disgusting root that just goes down deep into the soul, and we all struggle with it, and we all want to be liked. And 
it's powerful and it's dangerous. There's this tendency to want applause. I can't help to think of this passage in John chapter 12. After Lazarus has been raised from the dead, John tells us in John 12, 32, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So in the hearts of some of the religious authorities, after seeing the resurrection of a dead man back to life, there was this inclination to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But these guys so deeply loved being praised by the Pharisees that they wouldn't let themselves confess Christ. If nothing else, it just gives an indication to how powerful this motivation can be, that you can do things that are contrary to your conscience and even contrary to what you think may be happening with regards to God and His kingdom, you'll put it on the back burner for the sake of the praise of people. It's a really powerful, a super corrupting motivation. It goes by a lot of different names these days, like peer pressure. That's one of the ways that the world has kind of spotted You know, people tend to do stupid stuff sometimes so that people will like them. And and the world kind of calls it by different names. Peer pressure would be one of them. This is what you feel when other people are trying to get us to do something that we know we probably shouldn't do, but we feel pressure because we don't want them to reject us. We want them to like us. Beware of this. Beware of this. It will, you'll do stupid stuff if you let this pressure rest on your heart. Here's another name that it goes by in our day, people-pleasing, the willingness to do whatever it takes, even at great cost to what's healthy for you and at great cost of, of what's healthy for other people. You'll do anything to keep people from being displeased with you. You want to, people, you want to make people feel happy. You want people to like you. You want people to love you. You know, I can't stand not being liked. I'm a people-pleaser. Can you relate to this? This, I mean, I, I, and yes, we can all relate to this. Here's another way we talk about it, just drawing attention to ourselves. We see it in our kids. We see it in ourselves. I think of stuff, I think of stuff that I've said before, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm so ashamed of things that I've done to promote myself. Um, drawing attention to ourselves, intentional efforts to sinfully trumpet things that will make people see and admire who I am and admire what I've done or admire what I look like. Okay. Facebook or Instagram, social media, right? Think of how many people are addicted to the presentation of some virtual identity and just reeling to and fro in their emotions in an attempt to gain friends and have people publicly say that they like you. And this is uh, its sort of funny. It's totally real. You know it is. People are in turmoil over the, over the, the trumpeting of themselves in hopes that like, was, see, you see this? 
Like somebody, please, like me. Uh, beware of seeking glory from others. The desire to be praised by people. That's the second thing we can learn from Ananias and Sapphira. The third thing is this. Um, fear God. Fear God. When you read through this story, I think there's this question that comes up. It comes up for me, at least. Were Ananias and Sapphira really Christians? Like, was this just severe discipline of, super severe discipline of one of God's children? Or is this an exposure of, like, uh, wolves in the midst of the flock? And you know what the answer is? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us because it's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not whether or not Ananias and Sapphira are Christians. The, the, the point of the passage is fear God. Luke tells us that in two different places. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. And then again in verse 10, immediately Sapphira fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The main point of the passage is that the wonderful God who has saved us and given us His grace and redeemed us and adopted us and given us eternal life and a heritage and a future is a God who is, among other things, to be feared. It's not a game. <laughs> Being a Christian is not, is, not a, is not a game. We used to have this saying when I was um, skateboarding in my elementary years, you never, wanted, you never wanted to be a poser. It was, you know, there were, there were people who played the part. They would shave this part of their head, and then their hair would hang out down on this side, you know. That's, that, was a, that was a skater look when I was a kid. And you could have, a, you know, you could ramble off the different brands. I forget what <laughs> Alva was. Alva, one of them. Santa Cruz, Alva, Fred Smith, Tony Hawk, Nautis Coppus. and you could you could be in the you could be in the culture, and you could uh, when it came to skating, suck. And behind your back, we would all call you a poser. You don't want to be a poser when it comes to Jesus. When it comes to the church. You don't want to play the part, but everybody knows you're not the real deal. Well, the big thing is you don't want to play the part because God always knows who's the real deal. He always knows. And so he is, among other things, to be feared. Just because he's gracious doesn't mean he's a big deal. Just because he's gracious doesn't mean he's not a big deal. Right? He's a lion. He's a lion who's on your side. He's a lion who has invited you to approach him, but he's a lion nonetheless. And, and that requires a certain amount of fear and respect. There's a low rumble in his chest. Jesus is a very big deal, and he sees through every facade straight into the heart and perhaps there, I just trust 
let me say this. Nobody ever chooses to teach through this passage because they're like, you know what I feel like talking about? With the time when God killed people for being fakes. Um, so that's why expository teaching is, in my opinion, the way to go because it forces you to preach on things that you would never preach on otherwise. And I would never preach on this. But I trust... I trust that there are reasons why God brings this stuff up. And I, and I trust that God gave the early church this picture so that the church in ages to come would be able to look back on it and say, hey, look, God really takes this very seriously. Do we care about our hearts? Do we care about being the real deal? Do we care about not playing church? I don't want to play church. I don't want to play church. It's not a game. It's not a social club. It's not a Sunday night thing. It's not about filling out your checklist of religious activities. It's about the living God transforming lives. And I guarantee you, this is one area where we don't want to be posers. And so, as your friend, as your pastor, I want to challenge you just as I challenge myself. Let's give attention to our hearts. Let's not live for the applause of one another, but let's live before an audience of one. Let's trust in him um, and let's fear him, remembering his greatness and remembering his grace. And I'll close with the words of Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray.